Uh, if you will, turn to the book of John, chapter 21. Uh, we'll be reading from uh, the verses 15 through 19. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He, Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Grace to you and peace, faith family. We're in the middle of our Advent series, uh, a series here at Pine Summit as we address the questions of why did Jesus come? Why did he come? I think it's a very important question in light of the fact that we celebrate Christmas in this culture particularly, and we often forget the reason he came, and so we try to change the answer into the meaning of what we have before us. And as we prepared our hearts and our minds, and we try to make room, if you will, if I could use the little Christmas song, Make Him Room, uh, that was kind of the idea there. I guess it didn't go over too well. But as we do try to make room for the Christmas season, we wanted to take some time this Christmas and answer the question of why He came, so that we are then able, at the very least, to acknowledge Him, so that when we turn our gaze upon the manger scenes, that are so often displayed in our homes and in the, in the broader culture, we would do so with an awareness of what it means for us collectively as His church and for us personally as His own. And we started this, if you remember, by examining the first reason that we saw in the Scriptures as to why Jesus came. And we said that Jesus came for our ransom. He came to be the payment for our sin. And last week, Rick helped us to see the second reason why he came. And he saw, what we saw there was he came to call us to repent. To repent for we have sinned against a holy God and we are in need of his salvation. And this week, ladies and gentlemen, we engage in an area that each of us at one point or another in our lives or maybe we currently have find ourselves in. That space in life, that time of life, where you either believe you have paid, made so many mistakes that you are bound to a life of defeat. When the cloud of depression seems, or maybe actually does, rest over your head, and you don't know if you will ever experience that sense of fulfillment or that sense of acceptance again. And I come to us this morning and I begin to ask that whether you are in the midst of the storm or whether you have already gone through the storm or whether there is a storm clouds upon your horizon, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at the Christmas story this morning through the third lens of why he came in this series. And one of the reasons that we see that He came is He came to restore. And the first thing I want us to do here is I want us to gain some context here in John chapter 21. Some context. As we look at the promise. The promise that Jesus gave. You see, Jesus, I want to remind us of where we are. Jesus has already been crucified. He has already been buried. And praise be to God, He is already resurrected. He has already shown Himself to most of the disciples in the upper room. 
Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 20. Just go left a little bit here. John chapter 20, verse, verse 19. It says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, the fear of the Jews, uh, for fear of the Jews, excuse me, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins, sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see Uh, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors have been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, hey, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believed. And yet we truly are blessed, aren't we? So here we see Jesus coming to his own, his disciples in the other room after he's resurrected. This is important because it goes to the promise, it goes to the context. And then sometimes later, about seven days, the disciples decide, I mean, eight days later, he comes again and he reveals himself again to Thomas in chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. And then sometime later, seven of the disciples decide to go fishing on the Sea of Tiberias. Now, I want you to get this because this is important for you to understand the full context. You've got to understand he is risen He has already revealed to them. He has already shown them who He is, the fact that He is a risen Savior. He came back and did it again just to show them that, yes, I am risen. Matter of fact, He came and showed them that it's not merely a physical, I mean, a a, a spiritual resurrection, but it's a physical resurrection. Thomas, touch me, feel me, see this, know this. And so He does all this. And what do the disciples do? Well, we know that seven of them decide to go fishing on the Sea of Tiberias. And then what we see here, as, uh, as was just read to us in, verse, in chapter 21, what we can know is that this is a night of utter fishing failure. I know none of us in here have ever experienced those deep, dark evenings. But it is a night of utter fishing failure. They have caught nothing, and they return to shore. And here they are, they've returned to shore, and not, lo and behold, look at who is there but Jesus. And the Bible says they had recognized him and he asked them to cast the net one more time and they will receive a catch. And they do. And the Bible says that they have caught so much fish that they were not able to haul it in. And here John tells Peter, it's Jesus. So, uh, I'm sorry, they had not recognized him. And here is when John tells Peter, this is Jesus. I can't believe it's Jesus. We're in verse 6 here in chapter 21. He says, cast the net on the right-hand side on the boat. You will find a catch. So they cast and then a number were not able to haul in because of the great number. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, if you think about the story that's being, that's being manifested in this moment at this time, I want you to also think about what has already happened. Not only is Jesus resurrected, but I want to take you way back. I want to take you way back because it's in order to understand what Jesus is doing with Peter particularly, you have to know what Jesus has done with Peter in the past. So in order to get this, I want to take you back. Let's go back to Luke chapter 5. Go back to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read the first of 11 verses. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake by the fishermen and had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, 
and asked him to put a little way out from the land, and he, said, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put into the deep water and let down your cast nets for, cat, for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. Do you hear the resemblance of the story? But I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. Oh my goodness. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they, be, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement has seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And also were with him were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Of course. Of course they would see Jesus. They had already seen Jesus do this before. Peter gets some clothes on, the Bible says, going back to John chapter 21. The Bible says that Peter gets some clothes on. I don't know what's happening here. Don't ask. He gets some clothes on. He jumps overboard. And the Bible says that he runs to Jesus. And the others, they drag the net and they bring the boat to shore. You can all get a picture that this is in somewhat taking us back to what had already happened. It's as though Jesus is demonstrating to Peter something that's going on. And then Jesus, the Bible says, tells them to bring the fish to the shore. And after taking a brief inventory, they sit and they eat breakfast. As a matter of fact, we are told that the fill full of large fish, there, there was 153, for those of you who are accountants, 153 fish. It's quite a catch. So he sits down and he tells them to eat breakfast. And then first four, verse 15 starts with, So, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus begins a conversation with Peter. Jesus said to them, Come have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And he came and he took the bread. He gave it to them. Third time Jesus has manifested himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. That's a very important statement. Verse 14. Third time. Because he had already. I want you to get this church. You got to get this. This is the third time that Peter had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And then Jesus starts a conversation with Peter. But why Peter? Why does Jesus start this conversation with Peter? Well, again, you have to understand the promise, the context. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I'm going to begin in verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the, lighter, the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me as a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink of my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you, and you, when once again have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. So why...
Peter's denial of Jesus was prophesied by Jesus himself. Satan has decided to sift you, has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And that's typically what we see in our own lives. We have, we have, we have been given this, uh, this opportunity to be sifted like wheat. We have failed. We have not done what we ought to have done or we have done what we ought not to have done. But I want you to notice, church, did you notice the promised restoration of Peter as well in, back in Luke chapter 22? We hear Satan has demanded permission to use sifted by wheat. We hear the fact that you will not, uh, the, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. But did you hear the promise of restoration that Jesus gave to Peter? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you once and when once you have turned again strengthen your brothers you see peter comes and he denies jesus 3 times and here we see now jesus has already filled the promise or the the reality that peter was going to deny him but now jesus is coming and he is going to fulfill his promise of restoring peter and so we turn to the process we remove ourselves from the promise. You've got to understand what's going on here because Jesus has promised Peter that he was going to restore him and now we're getting to the process. And it starts with three questions following breakfast. First question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He references Peter as Simon. Some of y'all have Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son. Jonah would be this father's name, the son of John. So Simon, son of John. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I can't help but wonder if Jesus is not taking Peter back to his original calling. Why does he not call him Peter? Why does he call him Simon Peter? What is he doing? He's taking him back. Because what is Peter doing? Peter went back to fishing. So here we have Jesus taking Peter back to his original calling when he said Simon, when, he, when Peter was called Simon. With the added reference, by the way, of the son of John, it seems even more plausible to think that Jesus is drawing Peter back to the last time he was on shore without fish and oh, after a miserable day night of fishing. And Jesus came and he said to them, Then follow me. When Jesus, and you read in this in the Bible, and you can see this in Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22, that when Jesus usually goes to Peter and he calls him Simon, he is doing it in some sort of reality of correction. So every time that Jesus comes and he refers to Peter as Simon, you can see Jesus almost going back to Peter and saying, hey, you're working out something in your old flesh. And I'm going to remind you, Simon, of all these things. Again, it's as if Jesus is reminding Peter of his former name. Why? Because you are now acting like your former self. Can anybody identify? The days in which you are fully understanding of your salvation in Christ, but yet the days in which you find yourself weak, no longer identified with the calling that Christ has placed on you, but now you are more identified with who you were before. I wonder, I wonder if in the midst, in the mind and the heart of Peter, Although he was overwhelmed at Jesus' resurrection, he had already seen Jesus risen. This is the important. This is why I said that verse is important. Because if you don't get this, you will miss this in your own story. He had already identified that Jesus was risen, but he had not yet identified with the fact of his own restoration in the midst of that resurrection. Why go back fishing? Why is Peter fishing? Did not Jesus already tell them what he had called them to do? So why is Peter back fishing? Well, what do you do when you really mess up? 
I mean, not, not kind of partially. I mean, you really mess it up. Y'all with me? I can just see Peter. Man, I really messed this up. Jesus is resurrected. He said he was going to resurrect. And I told him I would stay by him in life and death. And he said that I would deny him three times. And I said, no, 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 I ain't going to do that. I ain't going to deny you three times. And now here he is having denied Jesus three times to a slave. To a slave girl, by the way. And here he is. Now he knows that Jesus was right. He knows that Jesus was true. He knows that Jesus was resurrected. And can you imagine... I'm messed up. Now, I know that Jesus is resurrected, and I know that He has saved me, but I am unqualified now for any service to Christ. I is, might as well just go back to being a fisherman. I'm just going to go back to my own life. I don't know. I'm not going to be of any help to Him. That was a season. That was a point. I can't be restored. I'm, I might as well just go back. I'm broken. I'm sinful. Isn't it shocking, church, how quickly we discover ourselves denying the goodness, the grace, the greatness, and the glory of our Lord at nothing more than the equivalent of a slave girl by a fire? You look at Peter and you go, I would never do that. Stop it. You do it today. You did it yesterday. You probably did it this week where you denied the opportunity to share the gospel of Christ because you were, you were scared, you were fearful of more, of, of something uh, worse than a slave girl by a fire. So before we can't identify with Peter, I think we can fully identify with Peter. I know I can. You'll have heard me say this joke a million times. I fully identify with Peter. My last name is after him. I'm Peter's son. You hear me? I get it. Every time I see Peter, I think, oh my goodness. I fully identify. I identify when fear overwhelms my heart. I identify when it seems as though Satan himself has sifted me out. It's not ironic that this is the week in our Bible reading that I'm going through the book of Job. And I was asking my men in DNA this week, would I be a man who is upright and blameless so that if Satan were to come before God, God would look at me as Donnie and go, have you heard about Donnie, my man? That God would have that much to say about me. Have you thought about him? Now, I've just ruined 90% of your theology, right? But that's what happened to Job. I can tell you, church, there have been times where I have felt like the very, the very reality that God has abandoned me and Satan himself has requested to sift me out. And what does that typically do? It brings me back to my old identity. And my heart's my heart no longer has thoughts of gospel influence, but it's thoughts of defeat. And instead of looking myself through the identity of Christ's resurrection, instead of seeing myself in Christ as my, as, my, as my atonement, as my propitiation, what do we begin to do? We begin to disqualify ourselves for the life that Christ would have for us in an obedient future because we are identified so much by our failed past. And it's in these moments that many of us throw in the towel. Many of you men have thrown in the towel because you have failed so many times in your past and you can't see your preferred future because of your failed past. And because of that, you look in your life and you do that. And now, even today, you are living a life of mediocrity. You are living a life of faithlessness because you can't see past your past failures. You can't see Jesus working in and through you because you can only see through who you've been. No? The multitude, the multitude of people who say they believe in Jesus. Today, yet when we examine our lives, we live lives of quiet desperation. I wonder how many people go to church and sit in the pew every Sunday morning living lives of quiet desperation. And we discover 
And I wonder how many of you can hear my voice right now and you're discovering and you're listening to this and you're going, man, he is speaking to me that faithfulness is far from the truth of your daily walk. Faithfulness to Christ is far from your journey. Faithfulness, true faithfulness. You know, I often find it funny, my wife and I, in the way in which, which we talk to my son. And I think it's right, by the way. My wife tells Chase, be safe, be good. I tell Chase, be dangerous. That's the way it's meant to be. Men raising men, hey, you be dangerous. And moms telling their boys, be safe. Be dangerous, be safe. Isn't that the whole reality of life, right? And I come to you and I ask you, where in your life are you living a life of faithfulness? And many of you, the reason you live lives of mediocrity, the reason you're living lives of faithfulness is because you have forfeited your future. You have forfeited your future because you can't get past your failures. Church, do you think Peter gets this? Or can you get Peter? Have I placed you? And that's all my job is here right now in this moment. is just to get you to sit next to the fire with Peter. Sit next to the fire with Peter. So Jesus asked the question, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Of all the things Jesus could ask, to ask me, do you love me? Of all the things that, that tempt this boy's heart and early in the morning of my failed past, he comes to me and he says, Donnie, do you love me? There's an interesting play on words throughout this entire passage. But this will not be our focus this morning. Because I want us to look at this through another lens. But it is an interesting study. Because the love here is the love agape. The commandment of Jesus was what? He said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And herein lies a great truth for us. Herein lies a great truth for us, church. I want you to know this, that Jesus didn't come in and ask him, are you thinking about me? Are you doing for me? He said, do you love me? Church, listen to me. Listen to me. You are a loving thing before you are a thinking thing. You are a loving thing before you are a doing thing. We are, we are human beings, not human doings. You do what you love. You do what you love. Love is the greatest, the highest, the most supreme ethic. Because from love flows all of life. Y'all, many of you have this passage memorized, but 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And here is Jesus sitting with Peter by a fire asking, do you love me? Now what he means by more than these is subject to discussion. Do you love me more than these? I don't think he's speaking of the fish. Right? Do you love me more than the fish? I don't think he's talking about that. So he could possibly be talking about his disciples, his brothers. Do you love me more than you love them? That's possible. Apparently the opinion of others impacted Peter. Remember, remember he said in his denial, what did he say? 
He's sitting there next to the slave girl. The slave girl says, aren't you one of them? And this is his words. I do not know this man. Do you recall Jesus' teaching of love in comparison? In Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, I think this is interesting when I began to study, when he started talking about this idea of, do you love me? Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, listen to the way Jesus starts this. And when you start putting all these together, it just starts getting more and more strong. He says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross after me, follow after me, is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This could also mean, do you love me more, other, more than the others love me? So do you love me more than you love them is a possibility. Or he could mean, do you love me more than the others love me? Peter boasted earlier how he was greater than the rest. Remember, Peter answered Jesus in what we read. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The word here is phileo. Jesus answered, asked the question from the highest form of agape, a love that comes forth out of the will from a sense of preciousness of the object, a love describing God's love. One of the, one of the commentators by the name of Boyce, he helped me much here with this analogy. He said, uh, for illustration purposes, I want us to call uh, the agape love 100% love. And Peter responds, a love of phileo, it comes from the emotion, the heart, from a sense of pleasure found in the object, a human love expressed in friendship, we would call it a 60% love. So it's a humble response from Peter, Peter, Jesus saying, God, do you love me? I mean, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, knowing what he's already done, he looks at it and he goes, you know I love you. I love you with the phileo love. Because if I loved you with 100% love, I would be there, right? It's a humbled response from Peter if you sit back and think of it. We often look at Peter in this passage and we think about it. Maybe, maybe Peter is trying to make a play on words. No, I think Peter is broken by his betrayal. I think Peter has come to the point where he is so broken. I even think that possibly here he could be in self-doubt. And what you're seeing here is a change of a man who once said, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death, but only a few moments later to deny any knowledge of him altogether. And what is Jesus' response? Tend my sheep. Tend is an imperative command. Tend is this idea for a herdman to feed. Feed my little lambs. I don't want to pay I do want you to pay particular attention to the possessive pronouns that Jesus uses with Peter. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but I want you to notice what he says about his people, about his own. What does he say three times? Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. They are mine. Praise be to God that I'm his. Quite possessive, isn't he? And then Jesus asked the exact same question. But this time he does so without the comparison. Peter, do you love me more than these? And then here he asks again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter provides the same response. Why is Jesus repeating? I don't know the direct answer to that, but I do know when my mom used to repeat herself, it was for emphasis. I, want, I, I just wonder, was it to ensure that Simon heard it? Was it to confirm Simon's response the way it was intended? I don't know. 
But Jesus here seems to be using the rhetorical tool of repetition as emphasis. And Jesus responds here a little different. He says, shepherd my sheep. There is reference to this word in Peter's writings. And when you go to 1 Peter in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, he actually uses this very word. And I tend to hold that maybe in looking back as he wrote his letter, that maybe he looked back and he said, this is where I, I heard this. Listen to what he said in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Peter indicates some exercise of oversight when he talks about these shepherds. And if so, then what Jesus is doing here is he's commanding Peter to exercise oversight in being a shepherd. When he says this idea of shepherd my sheep, okay, it's not just tending to them, but it's providing this oversight. There is a difference as well in the lambs and the sheep. Here the word sheep actually comes from something that moves forward. Something that sheep are an idea that it's this idea of something that's moving, indicating for us that Jesus is telling Peter, Peter to exercise oversight as the sheep are on the move, as the sheep are doing something. And then he asked the third and final question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But this time he comes to John's level and he uses the word phileo. What grace. A grace that grieves. Simon, do you love me? How do we know it's a grace that grieved? Because listen, verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Something in this conversation, something in this grieved Peter's heart, it touched Peter's heart deeply. And I can just imagine it's something like this. Uh, uh, and if I could use the analogy, Peter, do you love me with 100% love? Jesus, you know I've only loved you with a 60% love. Peter, do you love me with 100% love? Jesus, you know I've only loved you with a 60% love. So Peter, you've loved me with a 60% love. You hear it? Starting to get in there, isn't it? Hold on. Hold it. By the way, the last time that Peter was grieved, the last time we know Peter being grieved happens to be recorded for us in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 22. Guess what has happened? Let's go to verse 60. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately when he was speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And here again we find Peter grieved. church I need you to hear what I'm talking what the Bible is speaking what Peter has went through because I don't know where you are in your life I don't know where you will be in the days to come but grief pain and suffering are often the gateways to healing and restoration you see, church, my restoration can only be accomplished when I first realized I am broken. Now, for some of you, this may seem cruel. Jesus, this is flat out embarrassing. You are embarrassing this man in front of his friends. You are, you are being cruel, Jesus. 
Is it? Is it? Or have we gotten to the point in our theology that what is so cruel is actually what we so much need? I would ask, is it cruel to embarrass somebody in the front of his friends by coming out and saying, I am broken, I am needing, I am nothing, I need help, I don't know what to do? Or is the cruel thing to let the matter go on inside of Peter for the rest of his life and never again feeling like he's going to be used? Like many of you. You've settled and you think, I'm never going to be used again. Because what, is all, what are all of his friends looking at Peter thinking? Well, we know that he denied Jesus three times. We know Jesus resurrected from the dead. We know he's going to go back and fishing. We can already see him getting into his slump. I wonder what John, when John and James are sitting here thinking about old Peter. Well, they're kind of fishing with him. I imagine it's not too much better. But they're looking at this going, well, Peter's never going to be the same again. Is the cruel thing to actually go before Peter and to get him to understand his brokenness? Or is the cruel thing to let the matter go on inside of Peter where he and all the others think that he is inferior and that for the rest of his life he is going to be unworthy? For the rest of his life he's going to be identified as that guy. The denying guy. You see, church, this isn't cruel. This is kind. Public restoration so that all around him would know that Peter's past was Peter's past. And the Lord had Himself commissioned him to further service. No wonder the Bible calls for us to confess our sins publicly. The experience of confession, and I will tell you this, is often painful. But it is to the end that the matter so that we can pick up and go on with Jesus. This is the way it was with all of us who bear the name of Christ. When we walk away from His will, sin sooner or later ought to bring us to misery. It ought to bring us to grief. It ought to bring us to brokenness. And by the way, if it never does, then your heart is not regenerated in the first place. Hebrews 12.8 says that if you are without discipline, of which all have come become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Did you hear that? And then what does Peter come and says to Jesus here? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. And then he adds something he hasn't said before, Peter says. He says, you know I love you. The knowledge that Peter had referenced to this point is the Greek word eido, E-I-D-O. It's intellectual, intuitive knowledge. But the word here that he uses for you know that I love you is gnosko. It's the experiential knowledge. And how does Jesus respond with such mercy? Tend my sheep. He brings the, the, he brings the first answer and the second, uh, uh, the first answer and the sheep of the second answer together and he says, tend my sheep. So there's the promise. There's the process. The process we often have to go through is brokenness. The process we often have to go through are the hard questions. The process that we have to go through is this idea of, hey, do I love you? Do I love you? Do I love you? Do I love Christ? And there are people in this room who are dealing with this. Do I really love Him? And now I turn to the purpose. And I want to tell you that I have used my mind's eye and my heart's passion to reflect on this. And I am yet to get through this passage. I am yet to get to this paragraph without without being on my knees 
and I'm not starting real well. So I want to take you there. Can you hear the wood of the fire crackling in the background? Your bellies are full of abundant breakfast that Jesus cooked. Fish, which I've never had for breakfast, by the way, but it's a good breakfast. And you're full. And there you see Peter. Guilt-ridden. Ashamed. Broken. Can you imagine in your mind's eye with me as those piercing eyes of Jesus look across the fire into the eyes of Peter? What's Jesus going to say? You almost get that feel of a child after they've done all that they could do wrong. Have you ever been there? You've done something wrong in the middle of the day and you know the dinner table's coming and there you are sitting at the table with your mom and your dad with that sense of guilt and shame and fear. All three, by the way, very appropriate responses to sin. We ought to experience guilt, shame, and fear when we experience sin. And if you don't, something's broken. By the way, this was the same shoreline that Jesus called Peter to follow him in the beginning. And I want to ask, does it, call, does it draw Peter back to the memory of denying him in the end? Oh Jesus, I remember this is where you called me. I remember you called me here. And I have utterly failed you. But you'll notice I said, brings him back to denying him in the end, but wait. Wait, that's a part of the problem. What end? Here is the risen Jesus whose nail-scarred hands have cooked a meal for him to be refreshed. The grace and the mercy of Christ returns to the self-same shore to the man who has already denied him three times and with three questions of you love me followed by the command of restoration. Although guilt, shame, and fear are right responses to sin, they are not right motivations for restoration. Did you hear me? Let me say it again. Although guilt, shame, and fear are right responses to sin, they will never be right motivations for restoration. Can anyone in this room relate to me right now? I have failed at so much. I have wasted so much. I have denied Him so many times. And I don't think there is a man or a woman in this room who has not found themselves at one time or another having failed Jesus. But unfortunately, for many of you in here, your failure have become identifications for your life and it has left you downcast. And ladies and gentlemen, if we knew how sinful we actually are, our failures would not be so shocking. So we are shocked by our moral sin and we are surprised by our ability to to deny Him. Because see, ladies and gentlemen, one of the greatest tactics that Satan has One commentator said this. He says, one of the greatest tactics of Satan is to argue that having sinned, we have forfeited our chance for a successful and happy life, and so we might as well just go on sinning. 
How many of you have ever done it? You can't seem to beat the demon inside of you, quote unquote. You can't seem to beat the voices. So you just say, literally, you say this all the hell with it. I might as well enjoy it. I might as well go all in. Satan never tells you the ultimate payment. Satan never shows you. He only, Satan has a gift. And it's a desperately wicked gift that he wants to give you. And it's always the gift of showing the present pleasure without the consequences of the painful reality of the future. And the Christian life, as Rick said last week, is one of repentance that brings about restoration. You see, Peter failed. Do I have a Peter in this room? Peter abandoned Jesus. Do I have a Peter in this room? Peter compounded his cowardice by denying that he had ever even known him. Do I have a Peter in this room? But you want to know what the cause of Peter's failure was? Please hear me. It was self-confidence. See, for Peter, his failure was because he trusted in his own self. And for Peter here, ladies and gentlemen, sitting on this shore, his grief is the beginning of his restoration. And more and, and men, I know this because I've done DNA with many of you. You don't like being confronted. I've actually had men in this church. Matter of fact, I've had men leave this church because they didn't want to sit and be confronted with their sin. And I am here to tell you that you, do you know this? That confrontation is the very means of restoration? Because it's not until you are confronted with who you are that you're going to be able to know who you are not and what you need. Confrontation was necessary for his restoration. Pain was the portal for healing. The obstacle that stood in front of him became the very means by which God would use to use him. He is being disciplined by God in a way that brings about brokenness is the way to our own restoration. Now church, I preach and you know this and I believe and you know this in the forgiveness for the one who is lost and without hope. But beloved, I also believe in the ongoing forgiveness available for us through our failure. Did you hear what I said? I want you to get this. Peter, of all people, is the one who will stand not many days from now, from this point in this passage, and preach what? The first time we have ever heard the gospel preached in Jerusalem. This day, as difficult as it was, was the dawning of a new day for Peter. Oh. Mm. Mm. I wish I could pour it down you. I wish I could just give it to you. I wish I could just I wish I could just cook a meal like a fish and just have you eat it and just absorb it. But you this is one of love. This is one of obedience. This is one of the Spirit's work. But all I can do is preach it, and that's what I'm going to do. Could you listen to me, church? Jesus restores his broken people from their past failures. Isn't that good? That is good. And when restored, our past failures do not, listen to me, when we are restored, our past failures do not have to dictate our present reality and they do not have to become our predictable future. Peter, by the way, Peter was not asked, did you love me then? Peter is being asked, 
do you love me now? Do you love me now? I'm not asking, did you love him yesterday? Do you love him now? Our past failures do not direct our future possibilities. The church today is living so crippled. Many of you are crippled. You are limping through life physically, spiritually, emotionally because your past failures are directing your future possibilities. The grief, the shame, the fear, and the failure, they are all investments in the school of discipline and discipleship. And you will either make your pain pay or you will make it your identity. And you see for us, church, Jesus came to restore that which is broken. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. Solo Deo Gloria. So my question to you is how do you want to live the rest of your life? What does Christmas mean? Well, Christmas at its very core, why did he come? He came to restore us. So the question, church, the question for us is how do you want to live the rest of your life? Do you want to live the rest of your life in the restored purposes of Christ or the broken memories of your past? Remember, Peter has already seen Jesus resurrected. Peter had already received Jesus' forgiveness. But there was something lingering in his mind. There was something in his past that was weighing him down. So how does it all end? Verses 18 and 19. How do I know that Jesus restores Peter? Well, because I've read the rest of the story. But how would I know here? Because John tells me, Jesus says to him, right after he asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 18, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and will bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, what? Follow me. Why is that so significant? Because that was exactly what Jesus said when he first called Peter. Follow me. Do you see the restoration? I called you to follow me first and you failed. But I'm restoring you to, call, to follow me again. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. You are working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. I don't know where you are today. But as we come to the end of another year, I have a question for all of us in this room. What is holding or what has held you back from following Him? Have you, like Peter, failed to stand by your Lord at some moment of crisis? Some moment of weakness? Some moment of temptation? Perhaps you think you have sinned against him so horribly that he would never forgive you, never restore you, never use you again. I wonder how many men in here are in need of the restoration of fellowship with Jesus. 
I wonder how many women in this place need to experience His healing hand. And if you are here in any way, shape, or form, then I want you to know that John 21, Peter's story is your story. Observe the Master's restoring touch. And I want you to notice the absence of this. I told you so. Could Jesus have said that? I told you you would deny me three times. Did Jesus ever say it? He never comes and he says, I told you so. What about this? Could Jesus have ever said to him, how could you do that to me, Peter? Nothing. There's no, you're never going to change, Peter. You're always going to be like this. No. How does Jesus respond? Will you love me? And will you follow me? So I come. And I proclaim to you. The story of Christmas and why he came. Was rooted in somewhat in many of you sitting in these blue chairs. Listening to my voice by the app. Because you need to be restored today. You need to be reminded of this. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and in the flood. You're faithful forever. Perfect in love. You're sovereign over us. What the enemy meant for evil, you've turned it for our good and for your glory. Church, I come to you this morning and I ask, I ask your heart, are you in a place of restoration? For some of you, you are without Christ and you have no hope of restoration for you are identified nothing but your past. And you think you're sinful We have no clue how sinful we are. We don't know how dark and deep and broken we can truly be. And the good news is all of this Christmas, all of this manger scenes, all of these things draw us back to something. And I want you to know this. The debt that you owe to God because of your sin. He has already ransomed you and paid for you. In his coming, he has called you to repentance because he lived the life that you couldn't live and died the death that you deserve to die. And he alone can restore you. Just like he did Peter. And I believe there are many people in this room who are in desperate need of restoration. Please stand to your feet in the honor of God's preached word. If you're here with us this morning, we respond to the preaching of the God's word in two ways. The first way we respond to that is through belief by faith. And for those of us in this place, we have come to have faith in Him and to be trust in Him. And I would call you to that, to confess your sin before Him. And in that confession of sin, the historical reality of the church is to then be baptized. To be dunked beneath the water, having repented of your sin, to be dunked beneath the water and to be brought back up, to identify with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, to die to your old self, Simon, son of Barjona, and to rise to your new, Peter. And I would call you to trust in Him and to be justified by His work on the cross and to come to believe in Him by faith and to follow through in baptism. 
If you're in this place and you have not trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would call you to do that. This next part, the other way in which we respond is not just merely by needing to be justified and in that identifying with Christ through baptism, but the other place that we come is in the other ordinance, which is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is reserved for those who have called Him Lord and who confess to Him as Lord. So if you have pushed away from Him in restoration and in justification and redemption, I would tell you that this next part is not for your, uh, is not for your response. It's for those of us who call Him Lord. But for those of you who do, regardless if you're a part of another church or another denomination or whatever, we would call you to be a part of this Lord's Supper. And we call you to come and to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, it's simple. We do it every week because we believe and we see in the Word in which we believe in every time they got together on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, they came. On the Resurrection Lord's Day, they came and they celebrated in the breaking of bread. Because I know after hearing a message like this that I need to know that it's not in my works, but it's in His. And this is when the elements, the elements, the bread and the cup, when these come together and we're reminded that it's in His body and His blood that we have been redeemed and restored and the reason we partake is because we want to be reminded again of what it means to be His people. So we call all believers. If you are a believer in Christ and you are not under church discipline, we would invite you to the table to be a part of this with us. Uh, The way in which we do this is that you would walk out and you would walk up, uh, getting the elements, walking back to your chair, and then we participate in it together. But before we do that, so that we do not enter into this place in an unworthy manner. We want to come into this, to this table in a manner that's worthy of the gospel so that we don't bring our sin to the table. We are going to spend a few moments in quiet reflection in our own hearts where we need Christ to restore us and to remind us of who we are in Him, where we have not loved Him, that He can redeem and restore us through repentance and faith. So church, will you join me as we bow our heads before our great God and King, confessing our sin so that we can be renewed and restored in this day together. Let us pray.